Hey guys, we're taking a break from the podcast. I just wanted to introduce something. John has an idea and we wanted to share it with you. If you're interested in it, feel free to email us and let us know. John will share his email address at the end. I'm often asked whether people can see my notes, uh, what notes I have. They're very skeletal, the ones I uh, actually use in on lecturing. But people who, who watch realize I have little books with me. Uh, and I have a series of black books. I'm about six or seven, six of them, I think now. And uh, they're about 100 pages each. And each page is basically a lecture that's been given at some time or another. And I wondered, it, it would be a little more didactic and perhaps a little duller, but for those of you who would be interested, I'd, I would fairly regularly work my way through those books and talk about how that talk came to be and how I find you can structure it to keep an audience engaged. Um, if you would like me to do that, uh, please uh, send a, a note, say, yes, you would like that done, and uh, uh, we'll do it. Because uh, I, I've been pressured to write it down. I'm not doing well at writing it down, but I could do it this way, and then other people could write it down for themselves. Because that's what the book would contain in the end. How would you like people to message you? Do you want them to email you? So johnsallypatrick at gmail.com is the email address. Just say, I'd like to see how you structure lectures and which ones you think are important for Christians to be able to give themselves. If that's what you want, let us know. And we look forward to hearing from you. We're looking forward to hearing your response. And now back to the podcast. Good Wednesday morning. Today, John is going to be talking about happiness. We often hear the texts of Paul without hearing them. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. When you walk away from a, a sermon in which the text has been from St. Paul, unless you've made a big effort, you'll have great difficulty recalling other than the odd word that spoke to you that morning. And that's good. That's one of the ways the scripture works. But Take Romans 6, an important bit, um, and I'm just going to read quickly uh, um, six or so verses from there. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law and under grace. We often people hear people say, I'm under grace, not under law. And I say, does that mean sin is no longer your master? Well, in principle, yes, but God has made it so that in practice, the answer is no, at uh, one level. Here's what John Webster says about this passage. Uh, just the opening paragraph, which I hope will send you off to get your own copy of uh, this book confronted by grace. Um, one of the things which happens to us 
as we come week by week, Sunday by Sunday, to the Lord's table. Not every denomination does that, but many do, and all do it, I, I hope, at least uh, regularly, is the inescapable reminder <clears throat> of our own sin. There is no point in coming here, no point in joining the line of those who go to the table and kneel to receive the tokens of mercy, unless we are somehow aware that we are defeated. Defeated by sin, defeated by our own slide into routine wickedness, divided by, defeated by minds and wills which refuse to obey, and by bodies which are all too readily become instruments of disobedience. If we take seriously what we are doing, then we have to see that we are about the bleak and humbling business of seeing ourselves as we really are, not just as good folks who sometimes make a mess of life, nor even as bad people hiding a smark of native goodness, but as sinners, those who have offended not against good taste and morals, but against God. Now, if that doesn't stop you in your tracks, I think it should, if you're a serious Christian, because we all know this, and we don't talk about it enough, because it is the process that is described there of learning to consider ourselves dead to sin, thinking that is the beginning of true happiness. And people at the moment are on the quest for happiness everywhere, and they're as miserable as can be. We've never had the rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, drug use, alcohol use, disordered sex, divorce. Need I go on? And none of that can be de denied. So what's happening to us? Precisely what John Webster is about to take you into in that passage. True happiness is when you learn to understand that passage at its deepest level. And it's very interesting to me that Christ begins his public ministry with the Beatitudes, with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some translators, not unreasonably, uh, because it's a difficult word, what you mean by blessed, uh, happy are those. But you, he defines it in that text, the Beatitudes, and the first step towards being happy in the deepest possible way is what I've just read to you. Seeing how bad the problem is, it's a very serious problem, and we have to take it very seriously if we're going to come out the other end. And what we do, the result is real happiness, the kind of happiness that allowed martyrs to die with joy because Christ was with them in that process and they were unaware of what their persecutors were doing to the extent that with stones sitting on their heads, Stephen could pray for the people throwing the stones. So the young today think happiness is subjective. Well, there is a subjective happiness, but that's a warm puppy in your arms. You know, uh, children are very happy. And then when they're told they have to clean up the puppy's mess, they're not so happy. And so it goes on. Uh, that's a very simple level of happiness. Uh, what we're after here is a happiness that will take you through everything that comes your way. Um, Psalm 62 would be a good example. You are my rock, and everything that happens happens because you allow it, and you are with me, and I will come out the other side. It's not a sort of rah-rah happiness. It's a deep conviction that this is, in fact, a temporary dwelling place, that we do, in fact, seek 
a city whose builder and maker is God. And everything's done here. It's like training for a great event. A great event has, has begun insofar as you've been selected for the team, shall we say, to go to the Olympics or play in the World Cup or whatever. Um, but then you've really got to work over the year or two before you go. But in our case, the work has immediate benefits too, as we, we become very rapidly aware. So the current happiness is how I feel is a very, very silly way to go. Uh, we can make you feel happy with drugs temporarily and give you a high. Uh, the body has its own versions of these endorphins and they come along and we get, some people get a high from running, some get a high from doing a job well. Uh, there is an appropriate amount of stimulation that God has brought in that includes happiness. And when we're doing things that are not good for us, those endorphins drop back and we feel lousy. It's a marker for us not to go and bury ourselves in a bottle or other drugs, but to say, what am I doing wrong? So the first step is all about that, about what happiness is, how it's defined. Um and it, it's defined, it, for me, the best, uh, the example I like most, which is in a podcast previously, but I'll just deal with the first little bit at the moment, and people are interested, you can go further, and if you send uh, some notes so that I know it's worth doing, we'll go through it again. Every time I do it, it comes out somewhat differently, because not in the, the, the basic structure, but in the illustrations and the points that bear from, come from it. So... Level one is the kind of happiness that we get with, uh, with, we share with the animals, and that comes down to food and sex, basically. Um, and we could do without both for a while, and sometimes we have to do without them, but so it's not certain in that way. But it's transient. Uh, the animals, uh, the cows we used to have on this farm, they don't know, could push down any fence I built, but as long as they had food, water, and a very occasional ball, they were perfectly all right. Uh, they didn't push down the fences. Their life was um, safe. They would, once a year, they'd get out into my neighbor's corn or into some or an old apple orchard or something like that. Um, but even when you went to fish and they knew they were wrong, they weren't usually difficult to get back. Um, many of us don't know any other form of happiness. The next one on the list, and I'm thinking a lot at this point about university students, uh, is the life of the mind. Christ says that the first level of happiness, if he was talking about it that way, he doesn't actually do that because his world was a different one. We abuse those goods. We abuse food with obesity and anorexia and stupid eating habits. Uh, we abuse sex all the while. So we turn what should be a, a happiness at the core of our lives into an unhappiness. Then what do you do? Well, you go up a level. The next step, the Greeks understood. They have to be careful with Greek philosophers because they didn't have a concept of the fall that was adequate. Um, they were very smart, but... Uh, Aristotle didn't know about the fall, which is the key to so much. We are sinners. Jesus makes this the foundation stone. They don't. Um, but what they did want to do was to make you wise. 
and they thought that had to be done in a disciplined fashion. And so you could say the start of the universities goes back to Plato's Academy and to Plato working with Aristotle for many years, Socrates being the figure in the background who just talked to people and asked questions. But the objective was to become wise. Now, if you're listening to me and you're in or have recently been to university, I have a simple question for me, for you. Did you ever come home from a day in university and say, I'm wiser now than I was this morning? It's been a good day. Have you ever said that? It's very unlikely. And in the current uh, so-called humanities, what they're doing is propagandizing you to send you home angry about everything that's going on around you. And that's supposed to be a good idea. Creating wars at all sorts of levels and war sometimes is inevitable, but it's never enjoyable. It's never good. You always have sometimes centuries of repair to do afterwards. So you arrive at medical school, for instance, and the, the lovely kids at that stage, almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone who used to go into medicine, uh, wanted to help people. And that's a good thing. And they thought medicine was one way to do it. But then they get shoved into basic science, taught at a rate that you cannot possibly really take into your intellect. It has to be dealt with by short-term medicine. It's just because a group of people sitting on a committee looking at medical education thought that everybody should be given the, the science they had learned on the way in one dope, one dollop at the beginning, and it, it simply doesn't stick. Uh, it can't. It's, it's not the way these things happen. You can process information that way, and you can turn it into uh, thought if you do that thing all the while, but you don't do biochemistry all the while. In fact, you never do biochemistry in medicine. So I had to teach uh, a chunk of biochemistry because it was decreed that that was so. And I would actually say to students, you're not going to remember any of this. Uh, you've just got to get through it, and I will help you to do that as far as possible. And do be cynical. Look at the previous questions that have been asked in this course, because sometimes there's some very silly ones. And if you know they're coming, you can know the answer beforehand, and that's all you need. Um, you might remember the Krebs cycle, which is the basic transduction system for energy in the body. By the way, the energy is all carbon. Uh, every living creature in the world is a carbon economy. Uh, it seems that the people talking about climate haven't understood that. Uh, but if you do remember it, it will be of no practical value to you because you will never meet a patient who doesn't have a Krebs cycle. No Krebs cycle, you're dead. The bits of biochemistry that go wrong would take me weeks to sort out. A child would turn up and you would know there's some metabolic defect going on here. Uh, I remember a little girl comes to mind that she was waking up in the night and uh, and having a, an episode of uh, seizure. Uh, and her mum picked her up, of course, and she woke up and she fed her and she settled down again. And uh, it didn't take long to sort out that she was uh, lowering her blood sugar too far during the night, but that shouldn't happen. Now, at that point, one little molecule in in the body had no medical application at all. Uh, it's a thing called carnitine, which every medical student will hear now, and it's important to the 
the metabolism of fat. And during the night, you have to burn some fat if you haven't got enough carbohydrate in place. And she was deficient in carnitine. And it took us about three months to sort it out, uh, sending bits of liver all over the place. And then she needed uh, some modifications to diet, and it was all fixed. But that took somebody who had been doing biochemistry for years, and in fact, I got half the department involved in the problem. And uh, it was one or um, very, I was going to say obsessive, but that's the wrong word, a woman who knew a great deal of detailed biochemistry, and she went searching, and she found the answer in the German literature uh, some 20 years earlier, that they'd found the thing that I'd found in the urine, and they knew a little bit, and that led us to the right answer. But that's not going to happen to you more than once or twice in a lifetime, even if you're an academic uh, physician like myself. So that kind of learning of detail that you can't integrate into a whole is not the way to go. And the best proof of it I have is I have a, a friend who's still, he's my age in his 80s, and he's still working at uh, uh, a university in Washington, uh, Georgetown, and he never went to a single lecture in the clinical part of medical school uh, because he said, these guys don't know, to, don't know how to, to lecture. I can do it better from a book, and I want to see more patients. And he went and found a guy who'd got stuck in a small hospital at South London who was a superb clinician. And once a week, he'd go and see him, and he'd find him, he'd give him three patients to go and take a history, see, and then go to the library and look up what you can, and I'll meet you in the pub and we'll talk for an hour or two. And he's, an, he's a professor at Georgetown this, to this day and worked at Harvard along the way. He didn't go to a lecture because they weren't useful. They were, they were an early phase of what the bureaucrats do, which is find out things they can measure and then turn them into the indices of success. That is stupid. You've got to find out what you're for, what, what's going to be important. Now, that will come up again and again and again, but I will go down this um, rabbit trail at this point because it's something that needs to come up regularly. The word teleology is not understood by most people. But for Aristotle, teleology was the fourth and most important way to say you understood something. To understand something, you needed to know what it was made of, its material cause, the pattern that it had, its form, its shape, uh, an intellectual structure. Uh, you needed to have the skills to do the work to really understand. And there had to be a purpose for all this. Think of a statue, and you can get it very easily, the, the four categories that he thought in. So when Michelangelo uh, saw a block of marble, he set about liberating the form that he could see in it. There's the first two, material and formal. And he was a very skillful man. That's the third one. And he was making a statue to beautify the city. That was the purpose. Modern art and modern student activity is not to make the world more beautiful, but to make it more angry. Modern art is often demonstrably ugly, intentionally so. They're basically ripping us off with their own anger and selling it to us. Uh, watch Rob, Roger Scruton's video on beauty, which you can find on 
Scottish BBC, and he'll take you through this process for an hour. But what happened as time went by, we came to the scientific revolution, which preceded the Renaissance, preceded the Enlightenment, by the way, which uh, McIntyre calls an endarkenment, and I think he's exactly right. But science didn't go anywhere. Uh, Aristotle and company were very good thinkers, but they were, as all human beings, a little bit too egotistical. So they thought that their, the products of their mind didn't need to be tested. Philosophers still work that way, and they cause an immense amount of damage. Aristotle was wrong about physics, but he didn't go to the nearest cliff to find out that he was wrong. He thought, not unreasonably at first sight, that the weight of a body will have an impact on how fast it falls, but it doesn't, except where air is of such a density that it can slow it down like a leaf, but you put a leaf behind a penny and it falls at the same rate as the penny, because the penny pushes the air out of the way. No, he was wrong, but his view of how nature worked wasn't challenged until the scientific revolution beginning around the 13th and 14th centuries because he was very smart and so people thought he had to be right. We do this all the while. Even the smartest people need to be tested. If people can't, if you can't train yourself to accept criticism, you're actually infantilizing yourself to a degree at least. The moment you say, can you prove me wrong? I mean, if a student teaches me something new, I, I try to say thank you, because that's a good moment for them and for me. Uh, and that's real happiness when you go that way. You, you find an enjoyment in the better understanding of things. You get upset when you find a lot of people don't want to be troubled by understanding, but that's life. But that second level of happiness turns into unhappiness when you don't have that deeper understanding of what it's all about. If you're just memorizing and dumping, which is what most people do for four years in university, uh, in the worst places like women's studies, they learn to write almost incomprehensible sentences, and that's considered a success, but always saying the same sorts of things like the, uh, the diversity, inclusion, and equity nonsense that's going on at the moment. I put it that way around because I think die is a better uh, a better acronym for what they're doing than DEI, which is off guard, you know, but it isn't. So that gets lost because you're not doing that. So within weeks of arriving in medical school, the hot, a medical school many students are overwhelmed. And there has to be one prof who basically has the function of a, uh, a Catholic priest. And you go to him and say, look, I'm struggling. I'm not sleeping. Uh, I'm doing stupid things, drinking too much, probably taking drugs, mindless sex. But I know I can't get through the course on this basis. And you'll get help. and uh because we want to get you through, because we've got to produce the doctors at the end of the day. The dean certainly doesn't want to see half his class disappearing before graduation. So you have to learn to live with this misery uh, because you want to know more. I mean, the, all the way through medicine, even when I went, which was a long while ago, I kept wanting to sort of bail out and 
pursue bits of it further. And I didn't. I got to do that later on, which was fun. But then you get to patients, and they teach you as you go along. And you, you get the good thing about medicine is that there's a real human element of the learning once you get through that first bit, and you grit your teeth to get through the first bit. It it could be enjoyable, but it isn't. That's unhappiness too. When what your mind is striving for is not provided by what's called education. The reason for that is very simple, as Wendell Berry puts it in one sentence in describing one of my favourite characters that he created, Miss Minnie, the school teacher in uh, before the days of the automobile. So she taught a one-room schoolroom. And he says of Miss Minnie that Miss Minnie went to teacher's college where she learned many cunning techniques, which she's ha- never subsequently used. Because Miss Minnie loved children, and she loved books, and she taught by merely introducing the one to the other. So teaching, real teaching, can only be done by somebody who loves the student and loves the subject. That's the basic reason why parents must be involved in in certainly the early stages of school, because there are a lot of teachers there who don't have both loves, and the, the current faculty of education is turning out ideologues who have been obsessed by something they don't understand at all themselves, uh, and it's destructive. And they say, well, parents don't know what they're doing, we do, I've got a... I heard someone on on uh, YouTube say, I have an MSc in education, you can't tell me what to do. Well, that's an MSc that failed, because an MSc is merely an introduction to knowing that you need to go another step if you're going to be uh, any good at all. So... A so-called graduate education that hasn't made you a bit more humble about your own levels of uh, knowledge is useless and certainly untrue. Uh, it's a great help to me also in understanding the third chapter of Timothy because there Paul says, amongst the qualities that are required to lead in the church, I had a kind of analytical mind, so I sort of ran down the list and said, those are all character traits except apt to teach. I didn't really understand that. And then I realized that word apt is very important. It's not something you learned. It's something you were given. Teaching is a gift. You cannot teach people to teach, except very simple things. Real teachers are often very eccentric characters, but they imprint things on people's minds. It's very hard to know what it is about teaching that makes a difference. It's not a curriculum. You can have somebody who teaches everything on the curriculum in a way that can't be faulted and they're boring as can be and have no impact. Parents love their kids so that when they see their kids doing something interesting, they don't go didactic on them, they join in the fun. And that, of course, uh, does wonders for them. Sally was wonderful the way she would always clear up the children's toys in the evening and put them out on a shelf that was at their level so that in the morning their creativity can take off immediately and also it makes for a much more peaceful household. The idea that you're creating an environment in which their God-given gifts can develop, that's what it should be about. But we've lost that. Uh, There's much that could be said about that. But in, in, in that process whereby parents look at what their children are doing and see what they can do with it and with them. That's moving up to the next level of happiness, which will get you away from the agony of not learning things properly. And that's 
what you're doing at the moment in facilitating this program, Craig, is you're putting your talents at my disposal and in so doing, hopefully helping other people. Well, we know we do to a small degree, not to a large degree yet. Maybe, who knows, God's in charge. Um, that's happiness three, the happiness that sacrifices itself to the good of others. Parents do for children without even thinking. I mean, the little blighters take you over, don't they? Uh, uh, they've got you. And it, that's how it's supposed to be. They can, they can make grown men cry because of the way they are. And everybody likes the, the, the cute pictures of kids with big animals who are not afraid and the animal responds appropriately. Sometimes they don't. So those pictures are a bit dangerous, but that aspect is important. Uh, caring. The trouble is uh, we all end up incapable of doing that, whether it's for 90 milliseconds or 10 years or more. We don't know because there's more, not less than that. And if we put what we do into a higher place than it deserves, it will become a pain, not a, a blessing. So the way out from that is to go up to the last chapter of happiness, which is knowing God. Uh, Jesus said in John 17, I'm come that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Knowing, it, it's, it's such a deep word. It has unplumbed deaths. It will take eternity to really make any progress, so to speak. We get little points of it, don't we? People that have exciting conversions can remember that conversion. You can't recreate the feeling, but they do know that there was a, a time when, quite unexpectedly to them, the truth of the Christian story was made so plain to them that they couldn't resist it, and they didn't. And it's the best thing that ever happens to us. But We go about it because we're more creatures of the world than we're cr creatures of the Scripture. We have people who maintain they can teach you to bring people to Christ. That can't be done. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't get to there from where you are. Until the Holy Spirit touches you, you won't even have the capacity to comprehend what is actually going on. And then you don't comprehend what's going on. You expand who is there. Ah. Very different world. So... If one could teach this to students, I mean, you wouldn't have social justice warriors getting angry for no purpose, all this virtue signaling that's going on at the moment. Uh, I think the first question to ask kids who are getting angry about the state of the world is not to say you shouldn't be angry, say, okay, what are you positively doing? What concrete good have you done to the world today that has helped other people? Uh, in some way, you need to find ways of doing that. And it doesn't matter how humble they are. In uh, in the children's hospital in Ottawa, one of the porters who was who pushed the children to the OR and pushed them around a lot more and other things, was a guy with uh, uh, some cerebral palsy. He didn't walk well, but he loved the children, and he loved people, and. 
he made a difference because of that. And he frequently made opportunities for me because I, I knew him in a Christian context. And he would greet me by my Christian name in the corridor. Hello, John, how are you? And other people say, who's she? And she said, oh, he's just a friend and a brother. And then I had an opportunity to talk about what that meant. Now, they do that all the while. God uses children saying things that are just true to them to stop professors in their tracks. That's, that's the way Diane Combe ended up ditching her existentialism and writing books about children knowing God in the process of dying because the kid with Down syndrome, who was dying of leukemia, who had been taught to call her Auntie Diane because she liked that. She didn't have children of her own. And he told his mother one night that he had to tell his child that about leukemia, you can't, but he was a Christian family. And Down syndrome children routinely love anybody who loves them. So when told that Jesus loved him, he loved Jesus, that that's obviously what you do. But they, they may not have an IQ over 90, but uh, they have wisdom. And one night, as his parents had told him, look, you're not going to stay as long on earth as we are. You're going to get to heaven before we do because Jesus is going to come and fetch you. And you're going not to feel so energetic and not to, to feel so well for a while, but it's all right because that's what's going to happen. And, of course, he accepted that story immediately. But he also knew that his very smart doctor, Auntie Diane, was very upset about the fact that she couldn't make him better. And one night, as he was being tucked up, uh, he said to his mum, tell Auntie Diane not to be sad. Tell her it's all right, I'm going to be with Jesus and tell her I want her to come too. And when that story was related to her, it took her all the way back to Sunday school and the realization of what she had lost en route. And in one sentence, that Down syndrome child had returned her to the safe place that she had left many years before. Um, kids know nothing about this. And we've got to, to do something about that. Um, I don't know whether this will be successful. I know that, that uh, people love this process because uh, when I'm at a conference and questions come up, and there's always a question about happiness. And I say, well, I, I have a, a, a podcast that has it on, not a podcast, a, a website where you can find it. But uh, I'd like to teach it to you, but how many of you here have, uh, have heard me do this before? And it, it's always a good number. And I ask them, do you think they sh I should do it again? And what do you think I should say? Yes, of course. Because it's something they remember and it's going to form conversations uh, during the, the mealtimes. I don't know why it's not taught more widely. Um, I got it from Robert Spitzer, who was a Jesuit, and uh, uh, Catholic theology has it there, but Robert Spitzer can talk to Pentecostals and High Church Anglicans, you name anyone, he'll, he'll find a way to start. And Jesus is central. So uh, 
I hope that's helpful. And that's the short one for today. Thank you guys all for listening. We hope you really enjoyed that podcast. If you guys have questions for John, or if you want to hear that other talk that John did on the four levels of happiness, you can look back in the podcast for the complete talk on that. But we hope you enjoyed this and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.